Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, whether it's coaching or teaching Sunday school, my target audience, at least on the weekends, typically is what you saw up here a little bit earlier. The, it trends to the 6 to 11-year-old group. And while at church, it generally involves a lot more facial hair and a wig that is, is been described, has been described as uh, Jim Morrison meets Billy Ray Cyrus, a little bit of Bieber thrown in there. Uh, so when Scott asked me to speak on the topic of suffering or why, good, why bad things happen, my initial reaction was, this is way outside my normal gig. See, we don't, we don't exactly track down vacation Bible schools that seek out the answers to Job. There aren't a bunch of crazy, uplifting, fun songs about losing 7,000 sheep and 5,000 cattle and all your sons and daughter in one day. I just don't think there's a real need in the marketplace for that VBS curriculum. However, when we talk about when bad things happen, it, it's a question that comes up frequently at any age. And yet at any age, the answers are often uncomfortable, unclear, and it doesn't completely yield a satisfying feeling oftentimes. In national surveys regarding tough questions in religion, this one consistently ranks at the top. Interestingly, the surveys found that questions of suffering rate particularly highly among married couples. Interesting. Not even 24 hours ago, Glenn McDonald stood right here to memorialize a Zionsville teenager getting ready to start class at IU. Last Monday, as many of you know, a grill exploded over at Grace Community Church just across town, killing a volunteer as they set up for their men's summer festival. It is a very natural question for us to ask why. How could a good God allow so much suffering? I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, uh, to Romans 8, 35 to 39 in your Bible. There are church Bibles uh, in the pew in front of you, or in the seat in front of you, or you can look at the overhead. As we've said, these are our questions and his answers. So let's dig into the word and see what it has to say. This is God's word. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor any depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask now that you open our minds and our hearts to this challenging topic. Lord, there are no easy answers. You give us guidance through your word, and we seek that out this morning. Lord, I ask that you infuse this room with your Holy Spirit, and use my mouth to speak your words. Amen. Earlier this spring, many of you might have noticed a guy that remarkably resembled me, gingerly making his way around the gathering space up and down the halls with a walker. In March, I had surgery to remove a golf ball-sized cancerous tumor from my abdominal wall. In lay terms, this was a procedure that would accelerate nature's process of moving me from a six-pack to a five-and-a-half pack, 
In medical terms, it was to address a metastasis of melanoma or skin cancer and was my first significant health setback of any kind since my second craniotomy to remove melanoma from my brain almost four years ago. That procedure had followed the first craniotomy three months prior when the disease had spread from its original location, a much more intuitive spot for skin cancer, my rear end. <laughs> you throw in another surgery to excise the majority of lymph nodes in my right leg, and for those of you scoring at home, that puts the total at four significant procedures between November of 2007 and March of 2009. I was seriously at the point of negotiating naming rights to the St. Vincent's 86th Street campus. During that 16-month stint, there was one week in particular where the emotional burden reached a mind-numbing crescendo. It was a seven-day period that saw, in order, a call from hospice that my father's life of 67 years was in its final days, a positive test for cancer in my brain later that same day, an early morning call the next day from my brother over in Dayton indicating that my dad had a few hours to live, his passing later that day to the same illness I was again battling. Moments after his passing, sharing my news with my mom as we began making plans for the funeral. A return to Indy to meet with oncologists, neurosurgeons, and radiologists to plan the procedure. A return trip back to Dayton to eulogize my father at his memorial service. A trip back to Indy for the second surgery, and then waking up after the procedure with a half-paralyzed face, courtesy of a Bell's palsy. Of the many memories I vividly remember Concluding the more, uh, I vividly remember the memorial service and quickly transitioning to a time of prayer for me with the ministers and the elders from the church laying hands on me, claiming the victory over the very disease that just took my father to be with the Lord. Absorbing all of this were my mom, my wife, my impressionable little Jack, who was seven at the time. Jessica was only two years old. So what are we to make of this? Well, Corinthians 13, 12 puts it this way. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything in perfect clarity. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Christian author and pastor Lee Strobel uses a fog metaphor to describe a time that he and his wife were driving through Door County, Wisconsin, uh, they had entered into an area of completely dense fog. They could see nothing in front of them. They couldn't see the road under their wheels. They were afraid of pulling over for fear of being run into, so they continued to creep along. Eventually, they came upon a truck that was moving in the same direction, and they could very clearly make out his taillights. Strobel said they knew if they just followed the lights, they'd be headed in the right direction. And that same is true in understanding why there is tragedy and suffering in our lives and in this world. We may not be able to make out all the peripheral details as to why. They may be obscured from our view, and we certainly don't have the Lord's eternal perspective. But there are some key biblical truths that can point us in the right direction. So instead of focusing on the fog or what we don't know, let's focus on a few things that we do know. The first point is that Jesus told us there would be suffering. John 16.33 tells us, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrow. Christianity is a real world faith. It tells us the truth about the world we live in. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the fact, 
And Jesus came out and told it like it is. Acts 14.22 tells us we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus was clear to point out that all people will undergo trials. The reality is that this world is a painful place and we need to learn to live through his grace in this environment. The Bible also teaches us that some of the results of sin are sorrow, pain, and suffering. But as Jesus explained in the case of the blind man, that doesn't mean that all suffering and sorrow come from a particular sin. In this case, the blind man suffered so that the works of God could be revealed in him. The second point, evil was neither created nor caused by God. Genesis 1.31 tells us God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The cause behind most suffering is human sin or relates to man's original sin in the garden. God did not create evil, but he did create human beings who had a choice to love and follow him or not. He made us with free will, which carries with it a lot of variables, including the potential for moral evil. So much of the world's suffering results from the sinful action or inaction of ourselves and others. Genesis 3 goes on to tell us that because of sin, God cursed the ground itself, causing thorns and thistles and intensifying the labor it would take to draw food from it. The original moral choice to not follow God has resulted in a broken world, in a broken planet, where nature has run amok. Natural evil, things like wildfires, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters that cause people to suffer are the indirect result of sin being allowed to enter into the world. Romans 8, 19 through 21 states, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. In other words, nature's kind of ticked off. Even nature longs for redemption to come and for things to be set right. Now this question of whether God causes evil is one that is brought up time after time. And here's what appears to be widely believed and certainly supported in Scripture. Since God is sovereign, we can believe he is in control of all circumstances, not always causing but in fact allowing them to occur. I don't believe that God caused my cancer, but I do believe he allowed it. He's either all-powerful or he's not. Can't be both. Can't be both. Now, to be clear, I also believe that he caused the healing of my cancer four times for his glory. Point number three, Jesus understands our suffering. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position to be a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. God isn't some distant, detached, disinterested deity. He entered into our world. He personally experienced our pain. Jesus is there in our lowest points of our lives. He has a suffering context. Who better to walk alongside us? 
And yet, in the midst of our suffering, it is so easy to feel alone. It is so easy to feel abandoned. But we should not confuse God's silence with his absence. In Footprints in the Sand, poet Mary Stevenson wrote perhaps the most popularized expression of this sense of abandonment. She illustrates the comforting truth that not only do we not suffer alone, but at many times it is Christ who carries us through these trying times. Psalm 34:18 reminds us, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Point number four, God will bring good out of the bad. Romans 8.28 states he causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. He can and he will. God uses our suffering in a variety of ways to mold and sharpen our character. It's been said that character requires seasoning and wisdom requires experience. To give us a more spiritual and eternal perspective, he uses suffering to give us an eternal perspective. See, we're missing the box top, right? We don't have our own box top. God has a global box top. He uses suffering to grab our attention and teach us or redirect us in ways that will be important in our lives. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Look at our culture, look at our pace in this always-on lifestyle that so many of us leave with active work and families. God is willing to use pain if that's what it takes to arouse us and the people around us. He uses suffering for us to influence others. When, when you're a melanoma survivor, you are suddenly an expert on everybody's skin. When I returned back to the office, I had numerous questions that would lead to, so, so take a look at this. This one's been itching. This one's kind of oozing right down here. You know, I'm not that guy. Now, God has given me a chance to convert that into a conversation about my faith that ideally ends well. Um, he uses suffering to draw us to himself. Oftentimes, it's through trials and tragedy and this reflection that people find salvation. He can draw something good from our pain in a myriad of ways if we trust and follow him. So what is our response to suffering? What is to be expected? Well, a change in perspective, perhaps. Why me versus for what purpose? As the blind man, as with the blind man, the disciples wanted to look backward to find out why. It's the natural question. Jesus redirected their attention, consistently pointing them forward. Jesus asks a completely different question. To what end? While the Bible does not always give us definitive answers to the question of why, it does hold out hope for the future that suffering can be transformed and used to display God's work, focusing less on looking backward and more on looking toward the future. What else is expected? Well, in a word, much. If you're sitting here today in this room, Luke 12, 48 applies to you. To whom much is given, much is expected. We are privileged. I generally put it previously in the context of wealth or skills, although through my father's challenges and my own, I know I now think about it in terms of cancer. So you've had cancer, and more importantly, you've been healed of cancer. Now what is expected? 
I look at these health events as speed bumps with the specific intention of slowing me down, much like brain surgery has a tendency to do. To do what? To look at who he's putting in my life every day and be prepared to tell my story. Robin Roberts, who most of you know from her Good Morning America days, had a great phrase as she accepted an ESPY a couple of months ago from ESPN uh, for Lifetime Achievement. She said, make your mess your message because everybody has some. You know, as a, as a Christian for over 30 years, I didn't think my testimony was all that exciting. No near-death experience, no debilitating addictions. Well, clearly my story has changed quite a bit in the last few years and with it, in my own mind, the expectations. It is so easy to blow through life, missing opportunities of all types that God puts right in front of us every day. We need to be the arms of love. We need to be the knees for prayer. We need to be the caring community. Point number two, don't just believe in God, but believe God. Every three months, I get put into a CT and an MRI machine and sent home with a DVD telling me whether or not the film shows any cancer. It's a pretty black and white exercise. It could be a pretty agonizing, anxiety-filled day. During a series of tests uh, years ago, I ran across Jeremiah 29:11 while cramming for our upcoming small group. It reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, in a future. Praise God. Less than 72 hours ago, I was asked to stop by my boss's office. After 12 years and an accomplished, an accomplished performance, my job is being eliminated. Seriously? Seriously? It's Thursday afternoon. I'm preaching Sunday on why bad things happen, and my job just got eliminated. Choosing to believe in God is not going to help me with this trial. Choosing to believe God is. Why suffering? To show us that Jesus is enough. Point three, we must embrace the attitude of the Apostle Paul. We must count everything as loss that strokes your ego and causes you to play it safe. And instead, live our lives with abandon and urgency for the Lord. Further, never assume you've already attained everything God has called you to. First of all, it's arrogant. I've heard amazing stories about the impact that people have had on others' lives, even as their own, is winding down. In order to finish strong, we must keep pressing forward. Forget about the past. Forget about successes and failures, but strain toward the upward prize of Jesus Christ until you have accomplished all that God has planned for your life. Point number four, we know how the story ends. On the morning of July 28th, over 750,000 Indianapolis Star readers awoke to that headline. As many of you know, this was a bus accident that killed the youth pastor, his wife, their unborn baby, and another church member of Colonial Baptist Church just down the road. The next day, the same readership in a much, much broader national following got a very different headline. 
This is the good news. This is the promise. This is the gift and this is the choice. It can be a positive outcome of using the free will with which we've been blessed. But just like any gift, any gift, we have to accept or decline it. I started this talk with part of what Jesus said in John 16, Now let me give you the entire verse. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. In other words, he offers us the two things we need when we're hurting. Peace to deal with our present and courage to deal with our future. How? Because he's conquered the world through his own suffering and death. He has deprived the world of its ultimate power over you. Suffering doesn't have the last word anymore. Death doesn't have the last word anymore. God has the last word. We must believe that the puzzle will come together. We must be anxious for nothing, for our hope is in the Lord. God doesn't want you wondering if this is going to be a headline or a soundbite that would apply to you. He doesn't want you steeped in anxiety over whether you're headed for heaven. His word says you can know for sure. Don't rely on the fact that you come to church or that you've gone to some sort of religious ritual, gone through some sort of religious ritual in the past. The Bible is very clear. We can be religious, but not in a relationship with God. Religious activities and affiliations never saved anyone. Salvation comes from knowing Christ personally and receiving his provision for your sin and your future. It comes from making him your savior by asking him to forgive your every sin and by asking him to lead your life. If you'd like to remove that anxiety, eliminate the variable and celebrate the certainty that suffering is temporary in a conquered condition, I'd like to close us in a word of prayer that offers you that option. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together this morning. We wrestle with these earthly challenges and don't have your eternal perspective. But what we do have is the choice to trust and believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you are the unique Son of God. I confess to you that I am a sinner. In repentance and faith, I reach out right now and receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you graciously purchased on the cross when you died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. Please, Lord Jesus, lead my life because from this moment on, I am yours. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.